Tory Radio. The best news, interviews and much more. I'm Jonathan Shepherd, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the first edition of Challenge the Chairman, brought to you by Tory Radio and Conservative Home. Over the next 50 minutes, you will hear a variety of questions which you wanted Francis Moore to answer, from the A-list to regional campaigning. If you want to ask a question on what's going to be a regular monthly podcast, either email editor at toryradio.com or check out conservativehome.com. Challenge the Chairman, exclusively on Tory Radio, www.toryradio.com. Once again, uh, we're here with uh, the Party Chairman. Uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today, and thank you for agreeing to uh, take part in a regular Challenge the Chairman slot, where supporters will be able to put questions to you. It's a pleasure. It's good to, uh, it's good to have the chance. Uh, I'd certainly like to apologise uh, to those people whose questions we don't get chance to, to ask. There's been immense amount of interest, certainly through Conservative Home, who flagged this interview up and through emails direct to myself. So if your question doesn't get a- asked, uh, uh, I think the fault's down to me, so don't blame Francis. <laughs> now, now, politi- It'd be nice if there was something I don't get blamed for. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, which I'm sure we'll get onto in a bit. Politics is a lot about substance, but image is an ever-important consideration. We had a couple of comments initially about your attire, uh, and in fact the image of Conservative MPs these days. John Coles asked, do you really believe that not wearing a tie wins votes and enhances your presence? And Matt Davis adds, can he have all of your old ties, please, seeing as you don't wear them anymore? Uh, No, well, the other day we were uh, moving house in London, and my wife... uh said uh, she discovered a huge stash of ties. She said, do you really need any of these anymore? Aren't they just taking up space? Uh, I'm amazed, actually, always by how much interest there is in the whole issue of ties, um, which is not something which occupies me very much. I've never liked wearing a tie um, throughout my life, and I just find it very um, liberating that um, the, the, the part of the social change going on at the moment is that a lot of men don't wear ties anymore. And... Uh, End of story, really. Absolutely. I think you should have a word with my boss so I can take mine off on a day like today. Uh, On today, uh, on to, dare I say, for a more substantive image question, and it's the party logo. Uh, Ross Cowling comments that there's been a lot of speculation recently about altering the logo of the party, uh, and he wants to ask the the party chairman, why on earth does the logo need changing? The current torch of freedom symbolises the value of the Conservative Party, and changing it would be sending a signal to devoted party members and the country at large that the party's also changing its values and its principles. Is there any update that that you can give us on, on this? Not really. I mean, this is um, not... A, I don't think it's an issue of huge importance. I mean, it's, it's of more significance than ties, but, but not that much more. It's just a, um, a symbol, um, and people get quite excited about it. We've been through a lot of symbols in uh, logos in, and rebrands in, in the last 20 years. The, the torch itself is not a hugely long-standing in, in the party's history. The party's been around for the best part of 200 years, and the torch for the about 30, not even 30 years. Uh, if I remember rightly, and it's been through several versions of it, um, and a period when we dropped it. Mm. Um, so, uh, I know we, we, we will aim to get this done. It's not a massive priority, but we'll, we need to get it done, and it needs to um, be say something about the party uh, as it is, the 21st Century mm. Conservative Party. Uh, Simon Miller asks, how do you counter the accusations that all David Cameron is doing, and this is again seemingly about image, is aping Blair. There are a lot of desperate people who want to, to see David Cameron mirroring everything Blair said in 97, and they do have the confidence that things will change with a change in government, apart from the same problems, different people. Yeah, I hear people say that. Is David Cameron mirroring 
Blair, aping Blair, I don't see it. Um, they're very different people. Uh, David is uh, hugely focused on, on substance uh, and absolutely wants this policy process that we've embarked on uh, to be serious. Um, we've actually said a lot of substance. I mean, this idea that we're saying nothing on substance um, is complete, complete rubbish. Um, what, what does he have in common with Blair? Well, they're both very charismatic, um, attractive figures, and we shouldn't kid ourselves. Tony Blair um, has been a political phenomenon. Um, he's blown the lights out uh, two elections in a row and still won a handsome majority in his third. Um, that's says something about him. Um, I, don't, I think David Cameron is infinitely more substantive than Tony Blair. Um, I think he has a deep, deep cast principles in a way that I don't think Tony Blair does. Um, and, but, you know, if he's capable of delivering the kind of electoral success for the Conservatives and for Britain, therefore, that Tony Blair did for Labour, mm. well, I'd settle for that. Absolutely. Perhaps one of the most talked about issues, and I'm, I'm sure it gives you, gives you a headache, it gives me a headache, keep thinking about it, is the, part, is the A-list candidate for candidate selection that the party is sort of undertaking. I'd like to sort of kick off with my, with my own question, which relates to when we last spoke. Uh, you made a comment about gritty northerners and, and metrosexuals. Do you regret it or stand by those comments? And secondly, when we, we spoke... Uh, we, we spoke about uh, what thought had been given to finding a way to perhaps keep non-A-list candidates involved in the party, be it any alternative career progression. Are there any developments on that as well? Uh, yes, I mean, on, on the, what I said in our last encounter, I do slightly regret what I said, actually, because I think I, what I forgot is that um, uh, inverted commas don't appear in a radio <laughs> interview. Uh, uh, and I was referring. I mean, what I was trying to convey is that there are some stereotypes being created, um, which are ridiculous. And the idea that we're trying to impose sort of a particular kind of stereotype in unsuitable places is all I was trying to convey. But I appreciate that that, that, that um, inverted commas don't appear. Um, and I know it, it, it annoyed some people. Um, but. How do we keep non-A-list candidates involved in the party? Well, it's always been an issue. You know, most people who want to become a Conservative MP will not do so. That's a sad reality. Uh, and people know that when they become a candidate. Um, and it, it, we know that ha when whatever system there is, it is a bit of a lottery. It's not wholly a lottery. There's a ton of, um, of, of meritocracy involved, always has been and always will be. But nonetheless, you can have people who are fantastically good who don't make it um, and equally there has been known for there to be people who aren't necessarily in the top flight who do get through um, and um, that that's just part of life and I don't know any way of but it's not just true of politics I have to say it's true in most parts of life um, so uh, we do need to be actively involved with um, keeping non-ALS candidates involved but given that we're going to expand the A-list um, and, and add to it very significantly in July or over the summer, then I hope those who aren't on the priority list will remain keenly engaged. And they are. I mean, you know, by and large, they are. There's ne next is a, a fairly blunt question from, from James Maskell. He asks, will you be putting yourself up for re-election under the new rules regarding candidates' selection against local candidates and the A-list candidates if necessary? Well... I found that a slightly odd question, actually, for, from someone who's um, very keen on local autonomy. 
because it's for my association to decide that, not me. It would be t- intolerably arrogant for me to say to my association, you must go through a completely open selection. They know that it's entirely within their power to do that if they choose to, and if they choose to, I'd willingly submit to it. But for me to say, um, I'm going to intrude in your autonomy to the extent of forcing you to go through all the paraphernalia of a selection, I think would be um, going against the spirit of um, local autonomy. Uh, a chap called Edward, he, he, he's asked a question uh, about if the A-list, if the price list works, why don't we as Conservatives expand its use, say, for example, with the, the judiciary? Is that something that we... I do, yes, I don't quite follow that, to be honest. Um, I mean, the way the judiciary appointed is, has changed over the years, and it used to be very untransparent, very opaque, um, and it's a bit less opaque now. Um, I... I, I honestly don't think, I don't quite see the relevance. I mean, the judiciary aren't elected, as far as I'm aware, no one's suggesting they should be. We have a, a very personal question about letters not being acknowledged from the candidates' department, and I don't particularly want to go into that, because everybody's got their own anecdotes about good things and bad things. Yeah. It's the same with the health service. Uh, now, we know some time ago there was an advertisement for a head of candidates. In this area of vital importance, I think it's imperative that we get things right and get it right first time. Is the department resourced enough to do, to do the job, the task that it's being asked to do? Um, it's getting there, but it hasn't been. And, and I fully take responsibility for it not having been. David Park, who had been a head of candidates, left. We, we did advertise for a replacement, and, um, and the, the first two people we, we selected, both of them then said they, could, they got, actually got, got offered more money to keep going in the jobs they were in, so we couldn't get either of them. Um, and um, they have been under enormous stress. It's Running the candidates' team um, is is very demanding. It's been hugely demanding, not only running the whole priority list process, as well as handling all the PABs for the gratifyingly large number of people who have applied to go onto the approved list, plus preparing and now helping with the first tranche of selections has placed an incredible burden on them. But it's not only a sort of physical time burden, it's emotionally quite training as well, because you're dealing with people, as, as you know and others know, whose careers are at stake, and, and these decisions are, are, are powerful ones, uh, and which people react to strongly. And they have been under stress, and they haven't been sufficiently resourced. We now have someone who will act as, um, to take the David Park role, to be sort of operational head of the candidates team under Gareth Fox. Uh, we've also got um, Sally Griffiths, who's going to be spending basically four days a week with the candidates' team, dealing a lot of it with process, doing some consultancy, and trying to make sure we're set up better in terms of systems to deal with uh, um, inquiries and getting feedback and so on. Um, But we're also putting up um, some temporary support in there as well. This is a hugely demanding time for Mm. that team, and we we haven't resourced them sufficiently. We are now doing so. I'm sure. So candidates will be pleased to hear that. Uh, The following question, I think you've probably already answered the first part of it, but but I'll put put it to you because there's the second part, which you you may want to sort of bat away. It's basically, given your stated aim of getting more women into Parliament, uh, why why do you not require open selections in all seats so that even sitting MPs have to compete for 
their place with the A-listers. And then the second part is, can you not appreciate the irony of the new system being designed by men like mm. you sitting pretty in safe seats refusing to budge? So I think there's there's yeah. this this attack that you've got Bernard Jenkins, you've got yourself yeah. white males. Oh, you know, that's, that's, that's terrible. Yeah, and then Bernard and I are absolute sort of identical stereotype Tory MPs. You know, we're both straight white males, and indeed both of us us had a father who was a Conservative cabinet minister. So we both absolutely come out of central casting. Um, and I do, I do appreciate the irony of, of that. But I think the popular general response is, you know, it is for local associations to decide, um, do they want to have an open selection for a sitting MP? It's even for a local association to decide whether they want to fast-track a, a previous um, uh, candidate, and, and some already have done so. Uh, I have absolutely no doubt that some others will want to do so in the future, and and uh, as long as you know we're happy that it's a sensible choice in a key seat, because we do have to exercise a bit of um, 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 interest in that, then we have no problem with that. So uh, the, I think it it it's, would be, an, as I said before, an intrusion really into local autonomy to insist that they all go through. Um, a particular process. John, John Moss asked a question about candidates who aren't on the A-list and how do they find out about things. Do you think that all seats being advertised should be communicated to all approved candidates so that uh, a local candidature isn't restricted only to those who know the actual localisation? And then he also asks, uh, on an area that you've, you've already touched upon, when the top-up will take place in July and whether the candidates department will agree to meet anybody to discuss their prospects before or indeed after this. And his comment is, many of us have families and business colleagues whose tolerance of the current limbo situation is wearing a bit thin. Yeah, well, I appreciate that last point. And um, uh, I think the candidates department will, our candidates team and, and Shireen and members of the candidates committee will try to meet people where they can. But there are a lot of people and not very many um, of us at this end um, to do the discussing. Uh, so what we can do, we will. Uh, and it'll take place, the top will take place at the end of July or early August. Um, just on how do people on the A-list find out about selections? Well, last time the seat, list of seats being advertised was on Conservative Home within minutes of being circulated to <laughs> priority list candidates. I don't imagine there's going to be a huge problem um, with that. Um, and um, But it, it is true that... Um, some of the local, some area officers, some area officers didn't get told um, that their associations in their areas were being selected at that time. Didn't pick up the timetable, um, and you know, I think there's a lot of learning from yeah. this first process, and we we will certainly want to refine it. Well, let, let's leave candidates now and go on to certainly an area that, that I was quite pleased that there were questions actually on this topic: mm. uh, campaigning. Simon Mallett, and I think he was candidate in York in 1997, makes some suggestions mm. which he thinks will help in, in, in Yorkshire, an area that we need to do well in if we're going to get back into government. His proposals were that you know, he'd like to some help to develop a Yorkshire Conservative website, uh, appoint a research officer at headquarters who, who specifically looks at Yorkshire, help establish a regional office, preferably where telephone canvassing can take place. Uh, he states you know, the loss of the regional office in Leeds, uh, certainly seriously damaged, in his view, the party in Yorkshire. Mm. Are these things being considered? Because I'm sure you know every region will say exactly the same. Yes, I, th th these kind of things are being um, considered. 
and it's particularly relevant in the north, um, the northern regions in Yorkshire, the northeast, and the northwest, where our organisation is severely depleted. I mean, it really severely depleted. It's strong in some parts, but in far too many places, and particularly in far too many places where we've got a concentration of target seats, our organisation is weak. Um, and I do want to see, and we're working very closely with the voluntary party, leadership of the voluntary party on this, I do want to see um, a higher degree of financial and campaigning autonomy uh, for those regions. Um, we, we don't raise very much money from those northern regions, um, and we don't have enough activity, and we don't have enough sense of the party having its own identity, his own regional identity. And I think from every point of view, there's merit in this. So we're, I suspect we're furthest advanced in respect of the northeast, but I've got conversations coming up very soon on both the northwest and Yorkshire, and hope to carry this forward and hope people will see some fruits of this during the autumn. Yes, that sounds very positive. Now, the next question, I think the, th the name gives it away, disillusioned, yeah. that he, she asks, do you think there's any risk that we will alienate some potential Conservative voters by not appearing to take a tougher stance on crime and illegal immigration? Uh, they then add, I think that there's a real risk that by entirely rebranding the party and scrubbing it of any anything seen as remotely right-wing, there's a risk of UKIP taking traditional Conservative votes, splitting the vote and help helping to keep Labour in power. Do you share the concerns of disillusioned? Um, that we, we have to be aware of this risk, and, and uh, Tim Montgomery writes persuasively about the and theory of politics, that we need to expand from getting the support of only a third of the electorate to having the support of the best part of half of the electorate. Um, and you know, we want to be getting extra people, new people, broadening our appeal to new people, not at the expense of existing people. There was some rubbish talked about and written about how there was a plan to drive down our support in order to show that we're changing complete um, balderdash and bunkum, as, um, as Bernard Ingham used to say. <laughs> uh, we, this has all got to be incremental. It's got to be about broadening, about it, defining ourselves in a way that includes more people in the Conservative Party, not, not fewer too much of the time in the past, we've seemed to be obsessed with some idea of what it is to be a proper, and I use inverted commas, proper conservative, um, as if um, we don't particularly want people who don't support us for the right reasons. Well, some of the other day at a function I was talking at, someone said, why don't you stick on the website a definition of what it is to be a conservative? And I said, well, hang on, there are 100 people in this room. We're all committed conservatives. Mm. If you ask us all to write down on a sheet of paper what it is to be a conservative, we'd all come out with different answers. They'd be, I think, compatible with each other, but they'd certainly be different. Um, and there will be people joining us and becoming conservative supporters and voting for the modern, compassionate conservative party for reasons that none of us have thought mm. about. And are we to say, oh, I'm sorry, that's not an acceptable reason <laughs> You're not on the to push list. off? Yep. Yeah, yep. we don't want your vote. Of course not. Um, the, the, society is changing, Britain's changing, the world's changing. A party needs to be doing different things and having answers to different questions. And so, of course, there'll be different reasons for people uh, to support us. Coming back to the starting point, are we um, offending traditional conservatives? Well, you know, there was this idea that somehow, particularly in the North, um, we 
um, all this stuff about the environment and childcare and all these things aren't no one much cares about and doesn't ring any bells in the north. Actually, when you look at what happened in Manchester City Council, for example, where quite rightly observed that we didn't make progress, um, uh, is it because uh, metropolitan concerns about green issues? You actually look down the list of results and you see that in virtually every ward in Manchester City there was a Green Party candidate who polled very well. In some wards, polled better than we did. So don't tell me that these aren't issues that concern people. Don't tell me that issues like childcare and work-life balance uh, and, and all that aren't of interest uh, to people in all parts of the country, including very traditional conservatives. Um, my um, late mother, who was um, <laughs> who was would uh, on any calibration of being well on the right of any <laughs> definition of the Conservative Party that I've ever seen, was a passionate environmentalist. Thirty-five years ago, she wrote a book um, about the environment and conservation. Um, very forward-looking um, and, and looks actually very relevant. A lot of it is very relevant to, to the sort of issues we're dealing with today. Uh, the idea that these are not issues which traditional conservatives care about is complete nonsense. I have to say, personally, I agree that you know you can care about law and order and also care about your environment, and they're not mutually yeah. exclusive. And, yeah. and again, it's know, the and theory of politics. And, you know, you, sometimes you do want to knock some people's heads against the wall so that they can. Mm. That's, that's my view. Yeah. Justin Hinchcliffe asked a question about how the party operates in, in non-marginals. I think it's quite important for all the supporters in seats mm. that aren't seen as winnable. He, he asks, do majority seats, places like Tottenham and Hackney, matter to the Conservative Party, the big cities, Liverpool and Manchester, uh, in his view, were written off by the party in the 80s and 90s, and now we're polling fewer votes than, than the Greens and the old Liberals. Is it not important to be the main opposition in such, such seats rather than being in third or fourth place or even fifth, so long as we win the marginals? Yeah, I think Justin's on to to something really serious and important here. Um, there was this sense in previous elections when, let's face it, our resources were heavily constrained when we, we, we had narrowed, we had fewer people out campaigning. And there was this sense that every bit of resource had to be poured into target seats, target, target, safe seats going to target seats, um, unwinnable seats going to target seats to help, and forget about it. I don't go along with that. I go along with the first part. Uh, I think we need to do much more in terms of people in safe seats committing solidly to working and supporting target seats rather than the way we've done in Horsham where we've merged our association with, with that of Crawley. Um, and we need to do much more. We need to get out of the rather defensive mindset we've, in, we've been in where the psychological trauma of having seen uh, lots of supposedly safe seats going down like nine pence in the mm. 97 election really unsettling for people. Um, and making people feel very sort of territorial. This is my patch, we've got to do our thing in our patch because we can't risk losing it. Now that we're on the up, we're moving forward. I think we need to look outwards much more. As I say safe seats committing to target seats, absolutely crucial. We won't win unless we do that. But actually, I do not think that we should be expecting everyone in the unwinnable seats to disappear into target seats. I think it is really important that we put a stake in the ground um, and we fight and campaign. Mm. We may not be able to invest a huge amount in the elections in these seats, but we need to have a presence and an effective mm. presence. And out of um, general election time, we need to be doing what they've done so effectively in um, Salford, say, where they've gone from zero councillors 
in 2000 to 10 or so now, the major opposition, putting on vote share, doing very well, campaigning locally and effectively in the community. I was in Nottingham the other day, um, and we have, I think, seven councillors on Nottingham City Council. Association there, it's been brilliantly, it's being strongly led, haven't got an agent, but there's being strongly led, single association covering the whole city, three parliamentary seats. They've got huge numbers of new young members, active members, professionals, lots of people involved who are fighting city council seats for the all-out elections next year, and it felt really good. Um, and you know that kind of um, involvement there, and and you know probably none of the three Nottingham seats immediately leap into the target list. Not made any kind of final decisions on on this, mm. but. But, but, you know, we won them all three, in fact, in 1983, um, mm. in, in Bonanza year. But, mm. but they're not sort of high up the list. And yet there's very vigorous activity there, which is fantastically good for the party. Mm. I mean, I, I can add sort of the, the same situation happened in Bassett Law, which mm. wasn't a target seat, probably still won't be a target seat. But yeah, it's looking put, very you, interesting, you, Bassett Law, you, you put the work in and you mm. can win the council, and, and it sort of success well, breeds success. As we did, and actually I think, I think the... With the redistribution, new Bassett Lord becomes a pretty interesting seat for us. Uh, David ba David Banks, a, a really interesting question, which I was going to email him back and give him a big list. Wants to know how he can help when he asks, "What do you think will enable us to break through up north?" And as a new party member living in a relatively rural area of Wales, without transport, how can he get involved on a local level and help next election time? Right. Well, that's just asking for it, isn't it, David? <laughs> um, uh, here's the answer: You telephone. Uh, Welsh uh, Central Office, and the number is 029-2061-6031, and or, I guess, through the website. Um, I think the, the, the party in Wales is in quite good nick uh, at the moment. They're working, the leadership are working very closely together. Nick Bourne at the Assembly, Cheryl Gillen as Shadow Welsh Secretary, Lyndon Jones, Chairman of the Party in Wales. Um, great effort being made in the Blaenau Gwent uh, by-election. Um, by the time this is uh, broadcast, the result will be known, and I don't think I'll be giving away any huge secrets and saying I don't expect us to win it. Um, but we're putting up a spirited campaign there and getting a decent response. But actually what's lovely is that the whole party there is working together really well. You know, No backbiting, no blame, just what can we do, how can we make this work better. The director of the party in Wales, Matt Lane, is one of our stars. I mean, he's really, really good, working incredibly hard, but always upbeat, always cheerful, and always constructive and creative. It's great. Well, there we go. David's got no excuse now for not getting involved. <laughs> uh, I'd like to move on to what I call future developments. Uh, there was a couple of questions uh, on party conference, which is fast approaching. Yep. This year's conference will be uh, David Cameron's first one as party leader. Uh, what do you think we can expect to see him in, in Bournemouth? And Henry, Henry uh, Edward Bancroft comments that during the leadership election, you, it was discussed the idea of changing the format of the autumn conference. Is there any blue sky thinking available on this? Is are things going to change? Maybe not this time. Next time. There will, there will be some changes this time. The first change is that we're starting on Sunday. Um, Sunday lunchtime we'll be starting, although there will be some things going on in the morning. I'd love us to have been able to bring it forward further so we actually start over the weekend. Uh, we couldn't do that because there are certain, I'm told, absolutely irreducible logistical issues about exhibitors dismantling from mm. the Labour Party and broadcasters and then all of them setting mm. up at ours, which means that you can't... Yeah. The earliest we could start was lunchtime Sunday. But I think that will help 
some people, like a teacher, if you're a teacher, for example, you can't just take mm. time off during term time to come to a party conference. Um, and, and we do need to be able to g give people a chance to come, even if it's only for half a day, uh, to it. Uh, what are the changes? Well, we're giving a lot of thought to that at the moment. Uh, I think last party conference was great. It felt really good. It was, it was fun, um, felt very exciting. And yes, there was a leadership contest uh, just beginning, uh, so that added a certain zest to it, and it seems unlikely that we'll be having another one this time. Um, but what I hope we can keep from the spirit of last party conference was a spirit of very open debate, because uh, I think that really worked. Now that we're in a much more upbeat mood and a much less rancorous mood as a party, those, that kind of open debate f feels like feels very constructive in, in, a, in a bad time when you know you're going backwards or, or flatlining it can become it, it can become unhelpful and disagreeable um, but I think in our current frame of mind um, I think I favor us having some really open debates and, and, and really meaning it mm, I and it certainly knows the people I spoke to that there seems to be a lot of people who've never gone to conference mm. wanting to go so I expect to be yeah. a lot busier than, than previous years yeah. as well, which will be good. That's good. Uh, on to the issue of the, of the internet. That we recently heard that there's been a, a new chap hired uh, from Google. Could you give us an insight into his role and, and what maybe play what role will be played with the internet? Well, we know that we have to expand massively uh, our internet offering. Um, I think we're not behind the other parties at the moment here. We're probably a bit ahead. But we're not nearly far enough ahead, and, and in the states they're way ahead of us. Um, Sam um, is actually—he's either in Washington at the moment or just going over there. And as you know, Tim Montgomery went over there for us earlier in the year. And you know, there's a lot for us to learn from the Americans. Um, and, and Sam's job is to is, is to develop the way in which we use the internet. So early days, he only started two or three weeks ago. <laughs> so give give the guy a chance. Uh, but um, but he's got a key role for us in the future. I'm sure there'll be a lot of people who are quite excited about what, yeah. what's going to happen. Uh, Derek comments that uh, he welcomes the widening of, out of our selection process for the candidate uh, for, for London Mayor, but he's concerned that we're going too far in allowing non-members onto the selection panel to draw up a shortlist. He says, I'm also concerned that in opening the final selection vote to all Londoners, we are laying ourselves open to being manipulated by people who have no loyalty to the party. Mm. Why not insist that each voter pays at least a nominal amount to the party for the privilege? Well, on the second point, uh, we will do that. Um, we, we, we've said that. People will be voting by text or by phone, and it will be a premium text or a premium call. That's partly just to help pay for it, um, because it will otherwise be a fantastically expensive thing to do, which would, I think, rule it out for us. But also, it does actually meet the point about manipulation. Um, yes, people could... I mean, you can stop multiple voting... That the, the, the systems can prevent multiple voting uh, from the same phone, uh, and there are checks. You've got to, the, the ERS who will be running the ballot will will check um, against the electoral register. So you know we, we will have identity checks as as far as possible. But could there be an organised campaign by the Labour Party to elect the weakest candidate or who they see as the weakest candidate? Technically, I suppose they could, but first of all, I expect the candidates who go through to the 
shortlist all of them to be good people, who, any of whom we'd be proud to have as uh, leading the charge for us. Um, but secondly, if they do that, then they'll be paying money to the Conservative Party. <laughs> and I hope they'll regard that as a sufficient uh, disincentive. No, absolutely. James Maskell comments, as the recommendation by central offices to increase membership fees by 66%, can associations expect 66% more support from central office? Well, it isn't central office that's recommending this, actually. It's the voluntary party who are doing it. Um, Jeremy Middleton, um, who is the one of the vice presidents of the convention and chairman of the membership committee, uh, Jeremy has produced and his committee have produced these proposals, which I very strongly support. And it is, of course, um, um, the the minimum recommended minimum uh, is uh, only a recommended minimum. It's not a, an obligatory one, as the current fifteen pounds is. Um, the amount of money coming from associations to central office is not going to go up at all. We expect to raise no more money from associations. I'd love it if we could. You know, James says more support from central office for associations. I'd like to put it slightly the other way around. I don't want to sign like JFK, ask not what central office can do for you, uh, but try asking what your association can do for the party. Um, we raise, uh, associations raise something in the region of £20 million. Um, of that, a million comes to central office, um, to, 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 to the, to the centre. Um, I quite like that to increase. Uh, we're moving into a funding environment where it's going to be more and more difficult for us to rely on, to the extent we have, on very large donations. We need to broaden the donor base. That means um, increasing membership as well as membership subscriptions. It means fundraising from a much broader base, um, having a, a database of registered supporters from whom, among other things, we can raise money but also recruit volunteers and, and, and activists uh, and um, we need to have different ways of raising modest amounts but in above ordinary membership fee levels from more and more people. <clears throat> On to the subject of uh, associations, Brian Generas, what are you going to do as chairman to stir up the associations? When are you going to enforce some mergers and provide proper HR management of agents? Yes, what are we going to do to start the associations? Well, you know, one moment we're being criticised for interfering with, apparently interfering with selections, although by and large we're not. Uh, next minute, our fault, the associations aren't doing enough. Um, when are we going to enforce some mergers? Um, well, mergers, there, there are lots of different ways of getting critical mass in the party in the country. Groupings are, I think, crucial to that. Um, the old days when every association could be an island, uh, I think, are gone. The days are well gone when we were able to sustain many hundreds of professional agents in the field. We're down to a hundred, not much more than a hundred. Not all of those are campaigning agents, and that's not a criticism. Um, some of them are brilliant fundraisers, and, and do do. And I don't think we've got any agents who who don't. Um, you know, earn their earn their keep. Um, but what we need is a lot more agents who are, effect, providing professional cover in target seats. Far too many agents, like mine, until we did our merger uh, at the beginning of the year, are dedicated to safe seats, and we need to spread that cover. And we need more agents, and we are recruiting. We're training. First tranche just started, 
Angela Browning's working very actively um, with the um, uh, voluntary party in developing more agents, recruiting more, starting training. We need a lot more agents on the ground. And, you know, are we going to be able to find the money to pay them from the centre? No, by and large, we're not. We're going to be a, need to be much better at raising money on the ground to sustain the agents on the ground. Proper HR management of agents. Well, the problem is we don't manage the agents. The agents are employed uh, by the associations. Uh, and do, do they get proper appraisal and so on? Some, in some cases, yes. In some cases, an association chairman will provide a proper annual appraisal. But I suspect in many cases that doesn't happen. Uh, I think we need to get much better at that and we need to provide a sort of um, template from the centre. I think uh, regional directors and campaign directors should, by and large, uh, expect to be sitting with association chairmen when those appraisals take place so that there is some consistency across the piece so agents do much more feel part of an integrated profession uh, more than they have done in, in, in recent years. So... When are we going to enforce some mergers? Well, these things work best when they come from the ground up, um, and we will stimulate thinking on mergers and groupings. Um, we will ask questions. We will probe. Um, but uh, enforcement is absolutely the last step along the way. I'd like to move, move topics again. An issue that remains to spark interest w w within the party is, is, as always, it's, it's Europe. Richard Hislop asks, as chairman of the Conservative Party, do you believe the withdrawing of the Conservative whip in the European Parliament from uh, Roger Helmer was unfair and unjust, and will you use your position to help reverse the decision? Well, it's um, not really for me. It's, it's an internal matter for the, for the group for the leader and, and the chief whip of the MEPs, not really for the party chairman. And, um, uh, and I wouldn't expect to comment on it. I understand that the whip was suspended for disciplinary reasons. Mm. Um, and and it's essentially it's a conversation between Roger uh, and, and the chief whip and the leader of the delegation, really, not, not for me. Michael McGough comments that it's Conservative Party to remain as members of the EU and seek reform from within, uh, as William Hague made clear in his recent speech to Open Europe. Would you kindly explain the mechanism by which the party, if it ever again forms a government, uh, that's quite negative, uh, intends to achieve this reform? Well, we will form a government. Um, I'm very confident we can form a government after the next election. Uh, it's equally clear that uh, you're not going to do a achieve reforms in Europe unless you set out um, and provide leadership for a reform agenda. It's perfectly clear there is a much greater uh, readiness in the peoples of Europe to um, accept change. Uh, the various referendum results on the Constitution illustrate that, um, and the inclusion of the new European countries, the Eastern and Central European countries, in the Union um, create greater critical mass among the ruling classes, as it were, well, the ruling, that's the wrong phrase, the, um, the politicians, the political class, uh, for change. So there is uh, more momentum. Um, reform will happen when there's a critical mass uh, and a growing consensus for it. We will be leading that. Um, David Cameron and William have made it absolutely clear that we will be, we want to create a modern, open Europe, um, which is 
put left behind it the block era, the era of um, where, where geography, regional blocks ruled, um, and create a proper modern network Europe, which is mm. able to compete effectively in the highly independent globalised economy. Another question which I suspect really isn't within your, your remit but uh, we'll ask it anyway. Jerry Wraith uh, makes the following comment. Michael Howard and David Cameron have both said that it would be advantageous for Westminster to regain the responsibility for deciding policy on some issues it has already lost forever to the EU. Would you kindly confirm all of those areas of policy that the party <laughs> believes are better controlled for Britain by unelected EU commissioners? Well I'm certainly not going to trample all over William's um, territory <laughs> by um, talking about that but um, but I mean David has particularly talked about the whole social chapter area as being one where which which is really not appropriate we, which we always said that's why we excluded it from the master treaty to begin with not appropriate for um, European decision-taking uh, we had a, a question, comment from William, and I, I'm assuming it's not William made this one. Uh, he comments, why not seek a democratic solution to the EPP conundrum? You've got the A-list up and running and a successful approach to the candidate for Mayor of London. Why not declare that the Conservative delegation to Brussels be suspended, allow MEPs to set up whichever cross-national party allegiance they see fit, hold an election to decide which grouping will receive the backing of the official Conservative Party, either with MPs only or from full membership of MPs plus MEPs or a combination of both. Point four. On that basis, commit the party to loyally support whichever group is selected. Any M MEPs not supporting the selected grouping would not be permitted to stand for election as Conservatives again. All future Conservative MPs would be required to support and sit as members of the selected grouping. Point five. The process would need either a frequency to choose, confirm a grouping every five years or set a percentage of MPs or MEPs who could trigger an election if the issue cropped up again. The party chairman could have a major role here by proposing new rules. What do you think? I think that sounds like a hospital pass. <laughs> um, and I can see there would be a recipe for very cheerful chaos. Um, uh, and, and lots of competing um, MEPs setting up enormous variety of different arrangements and I don't think it's practical. I think the way we're going is right. Um, David uh, is uh, exercising some leadership on this and he and William working hard with Timothy Kirkhope to get this sorted. Um, William's going to have um, an announcement to make by the end of July so I'm really afraid I have to ask for a bit of patience till then. Okay. Fin finally, there's a, a couple of personal questions uh, that, that were sent in. Uh, the role of being an MP and also party chairman, I, th I think, must be extremely tough to juggle. Alison asks, do you feel you have any responsibility towards your constituents, apart from tabling the odd written question about health services? Your focus appears to be almost entirely on your role as party chairman. Is, is, is that a fair comment? Question? Well, I'm hoping that this Alison isn't my constituency chairman. Um, <laughs> who quite rightly um, is on my case um, a, a great deal. Uh, I, I'm conscious of this. Uh, I'm very conscious of this. The um, role of party chairman is demanding. It, it, it's uh, pretty... It isn't full-time, but it does take a lot of my time. And I, I don't really have a parliamentary role in Westminster mm. because you know, I'm not a backbencher. I'm a sort of reasonably senior member of the shadow cabinet but don't have a portfolio mm. so I don't have anything to speak on. I do occasionally do things on the floor but it's quite hard to find an opportunity to do it that, that's appropriate. Uh, I am a very active, I think I'm a pretty active um, constituency MP. I mean I do a lot 
um, in the constituency and for the constituency, um, and that continues to be the case. But it's pretty much below the radar. Not locally. I don't think it's below the radar locally. But, you know, am I constantly bobbing up in the House of Commons? No, I'm really not. Um, no, so my focus, political focus, sort of national political focus, does, is perfectly properly on my role as party chairman. Mm. Oh, and, I mean, the question, do I have any responsibility towards my constituents? Yes, obviously. I mean, it's the most important mm. thing there is. Well, the best MPs that, that I know, it isn't necessarily always speaking in the Commons that, that represent your constituents the best. It's actually doing the work in the constituency. Yeah. Absolutely. There's a final question from somebody with a, with a great name, King Bongo, <laughs> which don't know who he is. Uh, asks, do you ever get depressed by the fact that despite so many members voting for fundamental change in the party, there are howls of outrage every time any change is suggested, and some of which is very personally aimed at you and David Cameron? Do I get depressed? No, I don't. Um, and do I? I don't enjoy it particularly. Um, I, and, and there are sometimes. It's, it's suggested that we want people to object and protest because that shows that we're changing. This is sort of clause four idea. I've never gone along with that. I don't believe it. Um, I think we are driving change pretty fast. Um, I agree with David Cameron when he says we're not driving it fast enough. Um, we need to go faster, wider, deeper. Um, we only have perhaps three years, perhaps less, an election and we've still got a lot to do we've got a hell of a lot to do we've got to um, persuade people that this is a party that has changed from the Conservative Party they voted against in very large numbers in three general elections in a row we don't have time to hang around and we, there will be people who um, find the pace of change and some of the things that we say and do unsettling and uncomfortable, and, um, and, and, and I'm sorry about that, but I'm not sorry that we're doing it. We have a duty to the country to make this party electable, to make sure that what we're talking about to the country is what the country wants to be changed. We will, um, our approach will be based on conservative principles, but there's no point in producing perfectly honed conservative answers to questions that the public aren't asking. Mm. We have to have answers to the questions that the public ask, and it has to come from a party that they feel is their kind of party. If people don't feel that we as a party and we as politicians share their values, they won't buy our policies. They won't elect us. And if we don't get elected, we can't do anything. We can't make the country better in the way that we want to. So we will carry on, um, and you know, I said I think last time we spoke, I said I'm, I don't enjoy personal criticism um, at all. No, I don't know anyone who does. <laughs> I'm not particularly thin-skinned, um, but I care more about this party being successful and playing a part in the regeneration of this country and the renewal of this country than I do about my own career. And it's as, as simple as that. I don't want to sound heroic. I'm not a, at all a heroic person. Um, but I've said, if this is the last job in politics that I do, that's fine. All I want to do is make it work. And if that involves being a target for some brickbats, that's life. Bring it on, as they say. <laughs> well, on well that I'm not encouraging <laughs> anyone to bring it on particularly. You know, I'm not encouraging this. On that very positive note, uh, 
you, you've kindly given up 50 minutes of your very busy schedule to talk to us. You've answered uh, questions on numerous topics, and, and I think people will find it really interesting to actually engage with the party chairman, something that I don't think any of the other parties do. Uh, so we're setting first. I'd like to thank you very much. Thank you for having us, uh, and we'll look forward to talking to you again, hopefully in a month's time. Thanks very much, Jonathan. Thank I you. enjoyed it. To discuss sponsorship opportunities, email editor at toryradio.com. Do it now.